This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello again, my friend, and welcome in to another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Brought to you through our friends at ACAST and, well, wherever it is that you get your audio material thank you for finding us thank you for tracking us down and by us i mean myself clint davis i talk movies and television here on the show every month and my friend and yours andy sedlak who talks music on the show every month in just a little bit we'll be throwing it out to cleveland to hear what andy's been listening to actually this month andy is not going to be talking so much about like, he's not going to be like spotlighting one artist or one release or he's not even going to be eulogizing somebody if you can believe that because I know he just loves being the uh, in in charge of the uh, homicide division at the stream police podcast because he has to lay so many famous uh, musicians to rest every single time we do this show uh, but he is actually going to be talking about weirdo musicians who have espoused conspiracy theories if there's one thing we know about musicians we know they're 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 a pretty weird group i mean just in general i think it it just draws weird people to it whenever you find a musician like a a real longtime artist who is like who comes off as kind of like a normal person i think that is so unique and those people really get celebrated. I think that's why somebody like Bruce Springsteen is as celebrated as he is because he just doesn't come off like a big weirdo. Even though, I mean, he's made all the money in the world. He's been everywhere a million times. Every, every bit of critical acclaim you can imagine. But he just doesesn't He doesn't seem like a really weird guy. He just seems like kind of like a, you know, a, a regular guy, really. I mean, as far as the way he thinks of himself, I guess, and the way he talks about things. I mean, I'm sure he's got ego. But he doesn't come off like a big weirdo, which I just think is so rare uh, in in the music business. You know, somebody else who just popped in my head who I feel like is that same way, Queen Latifah. Let me give some let me give some credit to Queen Latifah because I feel like that's why people keep going back to her. That's why everyone loves her. She's been around forever. Everybody loved her music back in the day, and uh, she turned into an actor. Another field full of weirdos, but you know, she just kind of seems cool. So that's. 
It's Bruce Springsteen and Queen Latifah. That's who we're celebrating here today on the stream, please. Anyway, I am Clint Davis, and <laughs> you never know what you're going to get on this show, um, except for great streaming recommendations. And coming up later on the show, I will give you, as always, two things streaming, two movies streaming on Netflix, on Prime Video, on Hulu, and on HBO Max that I think are worth your time. I'm going to be telling you about the best thing I watched in this past month, and it is something really cool that's streaming right now on HBO Max, so I'll get to that. I'm going to be talking in a little bit about Netflix's Midnight Mass. I'm going to be talking about Loki on Disney+, Plus. Uh, and I'm going to be talking about Dune, which I watched on HBO Max as well. we got a lot of stuff to get to, and as always, I want to recommend you follow me on Instagram and at TikTok at Mr. Clint Davis, Mr. Clint Davis, and Andy is on Instagram at Andy Sedlak, S-E-D-L-A-K. That's how you spell that last name. And uh, follow our playlist; it's on Spotify. It's the Stream Police uh, podcast playlist. You can because uh, Andy adds five songs to it. Sometimes I do if Andy's absent, but if whenever he's here, he adds five songs to the playlist. We've got a lot of tunes there from over the years. And uh, you can easily keep track of it, listen to it whenever you want. It's a great shuffle, I will say, um, on Spotify. So just search Stream Police Podcast. And the show is actually there as well. So if you do a lot of your listening on Spotify, we are on there also. They accepted us into the fold. I don't know how picky they are, so I don't, I don't know if that's impressive. But uh, it's kind of cool when you search us that we come up right there. And uh, rate and subscribe, as always, because like Andy likes to say, it, it really helps with shows like us, and that means that means little rinky dink like indie shows, like ours. We don't have some big. I'm not like reading an ad for me undies or something. Okay, I'm not doing live reads. So this is a this is a mom and pop operation. All right. So before I get into the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week, I wanted to tell you a story. I don't do a lot of like let me tell you a, a personal story from my life right out of the gate because I don't think that's what you're here for. But I thought that this was just something that I, I had to get out there because I, I feel like we've got a, a very good relationship after all these years. And I can, we can share certain things that have happened to us, especially when it relates to the world of entertainment that we, we talk about here. And especially if it involves Andy and myself. And I got together with Andy for the first time in a few months, went up to Cleveland to see him uh, just before his birthday, actually, in early November. And uh, we had tickets to go see Bob Dylan. We actually had tickets to go see the Stones together uh, last year, but of course COVID ruined that. They ended up canceling their Cleveland date. So long story short, instead we used the money to go see Dylan. And I was pretty thrilled because I've seen the Stones, but I have never seen Dylan. And I'm a bigger fan of Dylan even than I am the Rolling Stones. So it was like one of those ultimate things I wanted to get off my list. And let's face it, Bob's pretty old. Who knows how much longer he's going to be around. I don't even like saying that. I mean, just imagining Dylan not being around is is uh is scary to me but anyway so yeah we go to see him he's gonna be playing a, a theater in cleveland that i've actually been to before it's a it's a theater where they do like a lot of kind of broadway traveling shows will play there and more intimate concerts and things like that so it's a classic old theater beautiful spot when you go inside and dylan's playing i mean this is just great so i get up there get up to cleveland and uh, Andy and I are just hanging out, waiting to uh, to leave, to head over to the venue. And before we head out the door, Andy says to me very casually, he's like, Hey, um, I've got uh, some edibles that a friend of ours who lives in Michigan, where it's legal, 
Um, he he brought some by last time he was over. So you want to you want some edibles? Maybe we do something uh, right before the show, something like that. They'll hit us as uh, as Bob is getting started. And I don't even miss a beat. I'm like, yes, please. I mean, that this sounds like heaven to me. Um, d- doing some edibles and and watching a Dylan show. And so Andy's like, well, I got fives and I got tens, you know, meaning the strength of the edibles. Now, I have never had edibles in my life. I did not tell Andy this, not because I was embarrassed, but I just didn't think it really mattered. But I'm like a biggish, bigger guy. You know, I weigh more than two bills. I'm more than six feet. So I'm like, dude, I can, five is like for babies, right? It's like for teenagers. I can do a 10. Give me, let's do a 10. Come on. So I don't miss a beat. I'm like, yeah, 10, let's do it. Andy takes that to mean, like, man, he must have done these before, so he knows what his tolerance is. No, never done these in my life. Never done edibles. Smoked plenty of times. Done mushrooms, all that kind of stuff. Never taken edibles before. So this is a first for me, along with going to see Dylan. But I'm I'm thrilled. So we get the edibles. We uh, go out to eat. We get, get some drinks and stuff. And then as we're about to walk into the theater, it's about an hour before the show's going to start, we're like, and he's like, it's probably a good time to take them now, so let's go ahead and, and pop those. So we throw them in our mouths, and uh, we walk into the theater, and everything's going great. The show starts promptly on time at about 8 o'clock. Dylan is uh, famous for coming right out. He has no opening act. He just comes out onto the stage right at 8 o'clock, gets going. He does a very tight, like, hour and a half to two-hour set with no encores. He's just a, he's a workman on the stage. He's not, a, he's not schmoozing with the audience. He's not throwing out classics that everybody wants to hear. He's playing album cuts, and he's in and out of there, and he's on to the next show. But what it is, is you're in the room with Bob Dylan. That's what you're paying 90 bucks for, what it was in this case. And I got to tell you, my friend, when Bob came out, I was on like another, I was starting to take off to another planet. And it was really starting to hit me within the first two or three songs. And I'm saying to Andy, like, man, it's really hitting me. Like, I feel like what I told him was, I feel like I'm watching this on TV. I feel like I'm like so close to the action and we weren't that close like this is a theater with everyone's got pretty much good seats i could see we weren't that close but i felt like i was like on stage with bob i felt like i was watching like one of those intimate concert films where the camera's right up on him and like but it was me i was right there so i felt like it was just me and dylan in the room and his voice just sounded great kind of you know very low and gravelly as it is these days but I was like having the time of my life and I'm like, oh my God, this is why people love getting fucked up at concerts because it's it's fantastic. The music sounds better. Everything just looks better. It's I, I am enjoying myself. It's probably the most, one of the most enjoyable experiences I've ever had at a concert was the first half hour of this Dylan concert. And I say the first half hour because it rapidly went downhill after that, my friend. I What I didn't realize is that if you're a, if you're a newbie to edibles, they hit a lot harder than uh, smoking does. Like, doesn't matter how much you smoke. Doesn't matter what your tolerance is with smoking. If you've never done edibles, start out at a five, my friend. It doesn't matter what size you are. Do not start at a 10, because I found this out the hard way. Now, I this is what people who drop acid, they, they're afraid of having a bad trip. This is like what I had. So we're, we're watching the show, and he's probably like five songs in. And I'm feeling myself taking off. Like my head is disconnected from my body is what it really felt like. My head is a balloon floating up to the top, a helium balloon up to the top of the ceiling of this theater. 
And I'm feeling like I'm never going to be normal again. Like I have broken my brain and it feels like this isn't real. Like what it, what it felt like was I was watching this happen to myself and I had no control over what was happening. And I kept thinking this was just a memory. And it was like, well, memory, it's a memory. So I have to know what ends up happening in the end. And I didn't know what happened in the end. So that led me to believe that, no, this is happening in real time. So I'm really like having to think about everything. So I decide, okay, I've got to get up. I've got to go to the bathroom because I'm definitely going to get sick. Like at some point, it's not going to be right now, but I'm going to get sick. I just know I have that feeling coming. Like I'm going to throw up at some point. You just know when it's on the horizon, right? When you're really drinking a lot or when you, you know, you have some kind of bad experience, even when you're sick, like you just know at some point I'm going to throw up. It's, it's on the horizon. It's on my plans for tonight. (laughs) And so I'm sitting in this theater, a lot of like old boomer people dressed in kind of nice clothes are here to see Dylan. I mean, this isn't the kind of show where like everyone's out of their minds. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this is like old people pretty much were at this show and everyone's seated. Like this isn't a concert where anyone's standing up. So we're all seated in our, in this theater. Everyone's thrilled to be in the room with Bob. I was too, but I'm like, I got to go to the bathroom, have to, or I'm going to throw up all over everyone here at some point. And I just wanted to see if I could walk. I just wanted to see if I could do it. So I tell the lady next to me, I don't even say anything to Andy. I tell the lady next to me, like, I got to get up. (laughs) And so she stands up. Everyone stands up. I'm trying to, like, keep myself vertical. And I walk out of the aisle somehow. And little did I know that that was the last, that was the, (laughs) the last I was going to see of this entire concert. I went up to the bathroom. It was an upstairs. I had to go up these stairs, these luscious like stairs out of the James Cameron Titanic movie. Walk up these stairs. I'm like trying not to fall down. Um, Andy's with me at this point because he thinks I'm just going to the bathroom. So he's like, I had to go to the bathroom too. So he's right behind me. And he's like, man, show's killer, right? And I'm just like trying to not die basically. And also not tip my hand as to how bad I truly feel. So I end up going into the bathroom into a a corner stall thankfully that was open in this very nice bathroom you know marble floors that kind of stuff again swanky nice place not the kind of place you should be down on the ground in but and i get down on the ground i am hugging this toilet i have my like hand across the toilet seat i got my head on my hand i'm kind of like like just closing my eyes and my forearm i'm sweating like crazy I feel like, again, I'm not here. I'm watching this unfold. I have to keep reminding myself, no, you are here. Everything that's happening is happening now. This is not an old memory. So I can hear the concert. Like, I can still hear Dylan bouncing off these bathroom walls. And every time somebody opens the door, I hear their own, like, little shitty review of the concert, um, of what they're saying about what's happening and what songs are being played. And Andy keeps kind of like... He's checking on me every now and then, and I'm like, I, I, I'm okay, man. I'm okay. And I really, I felt okay. Like, I didn't feel like I was going to die or anything. I just felt like I was so incredibly high that I just was never going to come down. And I'm like, I just want to sleep in this bathroom. This is the safest place I have ever been. I don't want to go home ever again. I just want to live in this bathroom forever. You can change my address and bring my mail to this bathroom in Cleveland. So... But Andy keeps coming back, checking on me, brings me water. I'm like, no, dude, you gotta get, you go enjoy the show. Don't be in here with me. I'm not, I'm not gonna die. Just, just go. So he does, and he keeps coming. But he took great care of me. So what I'm trying to say is, Andy, thank you very much. Um, I wouldn't have wanted to have anybody else with me there that night, watching over me and not judging me, and uh, 
keeping me safe. But anyway, I spent the rest of the concert in the bathroom. Andy comes in. And I'm telling you, we were probably 30 minutes into the show when I went up there. So I was in that bathroom for at least an hour, maybe more like 90 minutes. Andy comes uh, in and he's like, hey, that's it. Show's over, man. Uh, we we got to go. <laughs> so I'm like, I feel like I've been in here for like five minutes. I don't feel like I've been in here long enough for this concert to be over. And I don't want to leave. And so eventually I, I, I am able to stand up and find my way out. And a doctor who happened to be in the house... Uh, sees me like uh, stumbling out and ends up helping me, um, you know, find my bearings and get back to earth. And, you know, Andy and I take our Uber back to his house and I sleep. And the next morning I feel at about 80% and I come home. And it, it wasn't like until a whole nother day later that I felt 100% again. It was just so, this was the most intense high I've ever had by far. It made everything, it made my bachelor party like feel like, um, you know, a weekend with the Boy Scouts or something. I mean, this was insane. So, and meanwhile, Andy was just like, fine. He, he was like, it was like being tipsy for him. So, I mean, Jesus, my man is like Captain Ironsides or something. So, uh, shout out to Andy who can handle his shit. But, uh, this was my first time and I, I, it hasn't thrown me off completely. I want to do it again, and I want to do it at a concert again, but I'll definitely be going for the five next time. And I might even be cutting the five and a half because I just want to make sure that I'm starting out lightly. Because the, But that first half hour I had with Dylan, transformative, phenomenal, incredible. So if you get a chance to see Bob and your friend offers you to, offers you to uh, try some edibles before the show, make sure you go for the five uh, is all, all I'm going to say. Take it from a friend here on the Stream Police podcast. Uh, so there's my story of my first concert with Bob Dylan. It was an epic one. And uh, Andy, again, thank you very much for, uh, for for saving my life that night. At least that's that's what it felt like. <laughs> so that was, my, that was my night with Bob in Cleveland. God damn, I was in that shit, man. I never had no dope like that before in my life, man. That's the heaviest shit I ever smoked, man. I mean, I smoked a lot of shit before, man. But God damn, man, that's heavy shit. You okay? I can't breathe. What's your man? I can't breathe, man. He's a hope you're not busy for about a month. <laughs> Shoot, I'm gonna die, man. All right, let's roll on, my friend. And that is a actually a, a very good segue that I did not plan on for this entry into the canon of the greatest TV show theme songs of all time this week. And when I started doing this segment all the way back in May of 2016, can you believe that's how long we've been doing this one? I put together a list of theme songs that I knew had to make the cut one of these days. It was like a short list. I still go back to it sometimes. Just like off the top of my head, what are some of the great TV show theme songs ever? And I wonder what some of the ones you would think of would be. Well, the one that we're talking about this month was on that original list because I have always thought this was a masterpiece of, of the TV theme song genre if that is indeed a genre. Let's jump back all the way to the fall of 1978 when ABC debuted one of the most acclaimed sitcoms in television history and its theme song, which set the tone with some real smooth style. you know when the flute comes in you're in for a great tune especially in the 70s man 
Angela by Bob James was the opener for Taxi for five seasons, and it is easily one of the best theme songs in history, if you ask me. You think about an adult comedy set in the heart of New York City during the gritty 1970s. The 70s in New York, legendary period for New York. I mean, we've seen shows like The Deuce and The Bronx is Burning show how grim the 1970s were. I mean, the the, the Son of Sam and, uh, you know, porno shops and movie theaters all over Times Square and, like, don't be get caught after dark or you're going to get killed. I mean, crazy place to be. Heat wave, power going out in the city. I mean, just New York was nuts in the 1970s. I mean, truly, like a different planet than what it is right now. And so you got this show set really right in the heart of New York City, set right with a group of people who define New York grittiness and knowledge of the city, cabbies. And there are about a million ways you could take the theme song. I mean, it could have easily been a punk rock song. It could have been another, just an up-tempo regular kind of rocker. But Taxi instead dials the attitude way back and settles on a song that is relaxing as they come. What a choice. I think it was brilliant because this show was such a mature show and was all about the human beings that were driving the city's cabs and the problems that they faced every day, which were really relatable problems. I think as the, the song, which I find this song to be kind of melancholy, don't you? Isn't it kind of sad? This isn't like a feel-good, hey, we're having a good time with the taxi cast tonight. It's Andy Kaufman. This is a really kind of bummed-out song. And I think it's fitting because this was a kind of a bummed-out show. This was a show about deflated dreams. Really. I mean, if you've never seen Taxi, it takes place in a cab stand in Manhattan. And it follows this big ensemble cast of cabbies and other people who work there, mechanics and stuff like that, dispatchers. Nearly all of the people who work there look at this job as a temporary stop on their way to doing some kind of dream gig. Like they, None of them wanted to be cab drivers, with a couple exceptions. Almost none of them want to be there on a daily basis, but they end up forming this kind of family in this run-down building that serves as their office in a way that I feel like the best workplace comedies really do that. Like You think about the greatest workplace comedies, and you think about shows like The Office, and you think about uh, the American office, not the British office, because I don't think the British office did this. Um, but the American office, you think about Parks and Recreation, shows that are just set in workplaces always do a great job of making you want to be a part of that crew. Like it's a family of people together at work at a place that they don't really want to be. And that's what Taxi did, I think. The cast was a dream. It included all of these great young up-and-coming actors who had not made their names yet. But you know all their names now. Christopher Lloyd, Danny DeVito, Tony Danza, Judd Hirsch, Jeff Conaway, Mary Lou Henner, Andy Kaufman, like I said, breakout star of the show. Um, I mean, it's it was the show was co-created by James L. Brooks, for God's sake. So it was just... Really, a, a dream of a cast and a dream of a crew putting this show together in 1978. But back to the theme song. This, this song is this soft, super soft, jazzy tune called Angela 
that was written by Bob James, who is a master of the Rhodes piano. If you listen to any Bob James music, you're going to be hearing that Rhodes piano like crazy. And I really love that. I'm a, I'm crazy for Rhodes piano. So I like Bob James's music anyway. And Angela is really like his masterpiece. James was actually hired to write some music for the show. And the producers picked uh, one of his other tunes, a song called Touchdown, which is a more upbeat song. And they were going to have that be the theme song for Taxi. But then they heard this song called Angela, which he had written actually as background for another episode. He was going to use it in the third episode of the show. For uh, Apparently there's a character in the third episode named Angela, who's a guest player. And so they were like, oh, my God, no, we got to switch. We want this to be the main theme song. So they made this drastic switch. I mean, think about it, changing the theme song to a whole other song with a completely different tempo and feel and everything right before you're about to air, basically. Very drastic move, but I really think it paid off. I just cannot imagine this show opening with another song. And if you check out Bob James's album, which is called Touchdown, that had this song on it from 1978, listen to it on Spotify. Open up Touchdown by Bob James. And you can hear the song that was going to be used, but you'll also find a very, very nice six-minute full version of this song opening the album up. So the, the full uncut Angela is the opening track on that album by Bob James. Taxi would end up running from 1978 to 1983, covering five seasons, more than 100 episodes. The run of the show was rife with some kind of on-set clashes, behind-the-scenes clashes, ego problems, the kind of stuff that pops up all the time when you got a hit show with a big cast and people becoming stars rapidly and feeling like they need more to do. Uh, and the show actually switched networks, which I did not know. It started out on ABC for four seasons, and its fifth and final season was on NBC, um, which is a move that really, it pretty much never works. We've covered several shows here on the Stream Police with that switch networks, and it's like, it's usually good. It'll buy you like one more season, maybe two if you're really lucky, but pretty much one season, and, and that's going to be that's going to be it. And it's never like the best that the show can offer. Taxi could have honestly been one of the great long running shows, I feel like in TV history, but it kind of disintegrated and instead has this reputation as one of TV's great fast burning comets that left all these great, this, this phenomenal impact on TV history with the stars and the people behind the scenes and you know, the setting and everything else, just kind of an unforgettable, really great show. But you feel like it could have probably been on for a long time, could have had a 10-year run, but instead it was over in five seasons, and really four seasons was kind of uh, when the, the show had its its real meat. Uh, so, it, But the show won more than a dozen Emmys, including three in a row for Best Comedy Series, which is pretty damn impressive to, to lock that uh, award up for three straight years, especially at a time when sitcoms were really getting to be really good. But uh, Taxi was just a, a critical darling, and it's easy to see why. And its theme song, Angela by Bob James, will live forever as one of the chillest tracks ever recorded. And our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. <laughs> What a cool tune. And by the way, for anybody keeping score at home, that was the 69th entry into our Museum of Great TV Show theme songs. So big number 69. 
69. <laughs> Maybe I should have gone with something a little sexier for number 69, but I already used the True Blood theme song way back in our, our first one, so that, that probably would have been a good one for this pick, but ta- alas, we have Taxi. That's what we got. More of a kind of sad and smoking cigarettes kind of song than a uh, picking, up, uh, picking up women kind of song. All right, I want to talk about Denny Villeneuve's uh, take on Dune, which was actually on HBO Max for about a month, and now it's not on HBO Max right now. It's in theaters still, continuing its theatrical run, but it will be back on HBO Max in several months, about the same time that it hits uh, home video, if you will, hits Blu-ray and 4K and all that kind of stuff. Um, So... Uh, but Dune was really did really well for HBO Max and got a lot of buzz and has done really well in theaters as well. So this is this is a, a big success story, I think, for the model that HBO Max has set up where they're having the movies debut on their site, but also be in theaters. And this is a very adult movie, um, you know, not adult like in the waka 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 kind of way, but... <laughs> adult in the fact that it's like mature it's mature storytelling um so this is not like juvenile kind of sci-fi where i mean they are doing sword fights and stuff but you know it's not silly it it feels weighty in a way that a lot of sci-fi projects don't and i think a lot of them try aspire to so dune is if you don't know anything about it and i didn't know anything i didn't know dick about dune all right I knew nothing about Dune. I mean, other than the reputation that it had. And obviously, I've heard the stories about David Lynch's, um, you know, famous version from the 1980s with Sting. And I, I'm i a big Lynch fan, but for whatever reason, I've never gotten around to his Dune. So now I, I feel like I, I do need to check it out, just really because I'm a Lynch guy. But I didn't know anything about the story. So, and I've obviously never read the book, never talked to anybody who really talked about the books a lot. So this was, I went in totally naked to Dune. And from what I've heard, people who read the books and really have devoured that that book, I should say that book, Dune, um, people who love that book really thought this movie did it well. And and Villeneuve is a big Dune nerd, I guess. I, I mean, he read it when he was a boy and all this stuff, and it was like his lifelong dream to make Dune into a movie again. And so he got to live out a dream, really. And this was a pretty lofty dream that he pulled off. And I think he did it proud because people who read the books said it was very faithful. He stuck to it very well. But people who don't know anything about Dune, like myself, enjoyed the movie as well. Now, I do have some complaints about it. I didn't think it was like the perfect, phenomenal... I I didn't think it was as good as Blade Runner 2049 for instance, which was Villeneuve's last movie, which I was just blown away by. I loved Blade Runner 2049, uh, and I'm a big Blade Runner fan, so I thought, you know, he lived up to the expectations. I saw it in theaters also, and I did not see Dune in theaters. I watched it at home. So I think, you know, that probably does have something to do with it because his movies are brilliant to watch in theaters because he is just a visual master. The way that he stages things, the way that he uses special effects in a way that is so minimal, but so effective, and you really feel like you're watching something futuristic, but it doesn't feel way far-fetched. Like, it doesn't feel animated. It feels like this is really like, man, maybe it's just a few years into the future or something like that, and 
um, he's really filmed it somehow. And, and it was like, man, somehow Denny Villeneuve invented flying cars and really brought them out. Like he, he somehow is able to do things in the camera that look great that other directors just aren't able to do. And I think what he does, he does a lot of wide shots. He shows you a lot of the world. He's not up close trying to cheat. So he doesn't, you know, have to show you so much of the animation. He's not making characters out of CGI really. Um, you know, I mean, it's there's a lot of practical stuff going on. But when the CGI does happen, I just think when when Villeneuve is the director, he knows how to use it really, really well. And his stuff is is minimal. And some people might be bored by that because it's not an extravaganza when you go see a Denny Villeneuve movie. Blade Runner 2049 was not an extravaganza. It was very eerie and weird, and it was a, a, a cold version of space, not the bombastic, crazy Star Wars, Guardians of the Galaxy kind of space that we've seen so many times, um, that, which is also great, which is fun. You know, the Star Trek kind of thing. This is something else. And uh, I, I think, you know, if you're, if you're not going to, like, if you're not dying for just explosions and stuff like that, then Dune is a movie you probably will be into. Because this isn't like a, a movie that only sci-fi geeks will get into. There's a lot of politics in this. There's a lot of good characters in this movie. Um, and the world building is is very well done. So uh, I just, again, I, I think that this was a success on all fronts. Um, my biggest rip on Dune is that it was made to be part one of a two-part thing. And that wasn't like HBO hadn't, or I'm sorry, Warner Brothers hadn't committed to a second part. But Villeneuve wrote this, made this movie in a way where it had to be a two-parter because with the way this one ends, you would have been so disappointed if that was all we ever saw of it. I think this would have just as bad a reputation as the, the 1980s one did because it would feel so incomplete, so much more incomplete than that one because that one at least tried to tell the entire film, uh, or book, I'm sorry, in one film, and this one leaves it up to two parts, which is obviously much more manageable when you're trying to tell this big tome of a book and you're trying to lay out all this world building that is takes place in a completely different, you know, time period and things have changed and whatever. Um, so I think it's the only way you could really do it justice. Probably. I mean, I hate to say that because there's always a way I think that you can tell a book in one movie. I mean, it's been done with some pretty massive books uh, they have they have done it before. P plenty of directors have been able to pull that off. Uh, but Dune, for whatever reason, they Villeneuve wanted to do this as two movies. I think he felt like the story lent itself to two distinct movies, and I could see that now that what I've seen from the first film. But I do feel like the ending, big-time anticlimactic. And it's one of those deals where I wish they were doing the movies kind of back-to-back, -back, like they did with the... Uh, Matrix movies, you remember that? Then they released they released parts two and three at the same time, so you could have gone and seen part two and then seen part three right after that. I would have liked that to have happened, um, but obviously Warner's hadn't uh, you know committed yet. They weren't sure that they wanted to be in the Dune business for too long, but it looks like they are happy to be in the Dune business. I find the world that this was set up in, the world that this takes place in, I, I thought it was interesting. seems like there's a lot of political maneuvering, backstabbing going on uh, that isn't necessarily explored a lot in the movie that I feel like if this was a TV show, they would have spent a lot of time doing. Um, the movie's not real heavy on dialogue, uh, which you'll probably be thankful for because it is long. 
And you just, you know, nobody wants to just go and watch in a sci-fi movie like this. People just talk about the things that they say in the book as far as how they set the world up. We want to see it. You know what I mean? And I think Villeneuve brings it to life. Uh, I think the allegory, so Dune is an allegory, really. It's all about this, this teenager named Paul who comes from this, you know, ruling family, very powerful family. Um, and they rule this, you know, another planet in this, this universe. Uh, and his father is played by Oscar Isaac. And he's kind of this really, you know, benevolent, respected ruler. And Paul is going to be his young heir. So anyway, they get the job, basically, uh, from the emperor of this galaxy to uh, take over the contract of ruling this certain planet that is inhabited by um, a sovereign people who are, you know, kind of like the original, they're like the aboriginals, basically, or the Native Americans of this world that they live on. They're the original inhabitants of this planet, and they bow to no master. They don't appreciate these other, you know, white, basically, rulers, European rulers, you could look at it as, coming into their planet and taking what is a very valuable resource off of their sand, which is called spice. Um, and so Paul and his family are tasked with going to this planet and, and keeping up the spice trade and maybe making connections with um, this, you know, with these people that live there. Uh, and and maybe getting them to come on board with the whole thing. So it's a it's a really a story about Paul becoming the hero. Obviously, it's kind of the you know the hero's journey kind of thing. And he does a lot of growing up through the story. Uh, and you know, there's plenty of combat along the way. Nothing smooth. And uh, the whole thing ends up being kind of a nightmare for his family once they get to this planet. So that's kind of the the the, the two dollar version of what happens in Dune. I'm not doing it justice. I'm sure somebody who's read the book is like sitting here screaming and they've probably turned it off by now. So they're not listening anymore, but that's, that's really in a nutshell what's going on. There's a lot more going on than that. And much of it is character drama uh, that is happening. And, and like I said, political backstabbing going on some mysteries too, because Paul has these visions that are like dreams, visions of the future that may or may not come true. Um, to varying degrees. And so you're trying to figure out what do these visions mean and how do they tie into everything and why do these visions make him so important and there's, there are prophecies, there's all kinds of stuff going on. But the, the story was an allegory is what I was trying to say. I think when this book came out 50-some years ago, Dune was an allegory for European countries going into the Middle East and pillaging the desert for in the you know whatever what spice is in the book and in the movie it's described as this sacred substance substance that makes interstellar travel possible hmm what could that mean it makes travel possible and it comes from the desert i wonder if they could be talking about oil so it was it's very it's not subtle at all at this point but i think you know 50 some years ago it probably was kind of subtle because this was not in the discourse as much as it is these days i mean we all know how sleazy and nasty it is you know, depending on foreign oil and all the, the the international relations nightmares that come along with that and all the human rights violations that, you know, have to be overlooked and the sticky kind of um, friendships that end up happening politically because of this kind of stuff. So we all know about that. We've been hit over the head a million times with stories about, you know, oil being something that 
it doesn't belong to us necessarily and and you know it really you know belongs to the planet so it's it's kind of the whole thing we've kind of been hit over the head with it at this point but i think when it came out it was a lot more fresh and i think even when lynch made his movie it was probably a lot more fresh politically but at this point this feels a little bit stale this kind of message but it does still work because we are still at this point talking about the rights of indigenous people and that's really a big part of Dune's story is the indigenous people of this particular planet and uh, how are these invaders going to come in and, and relate to them or should they even be there and how are they going to get along and are they going to treat them with respect and that, you know all that stuff comes into play. So I think it, you know, it still is timely, but also we've heard these stories kind of a million times. So, But the, the ending... Uh, felt again like it came out of nowhere it was there's like a climactic fight and i say climactic in quotes with finger quotes here it works really well on a podcast this fight felt pretty pedestrian it didn't feel like the kind of thing that you end a movie on uh so i was i was kind of bummed about that but i have absolutely no complaints about the look of the movie at all it was gorgeous to look at costumes were fantastic the world looked great nothing nothing took me out of the movie at all as far as the performances the um the the look of the movie the costumes the cgi nothing took me out of the movie for a second the only thing that maybe did was uh the the score in a couple of places kind of took me a little bit i i don't know uh was a little weird for me didn't really wasn't my favorite score a couple songs i really did like but uh, other things threw me off and kind of made me not uh not love it as much but that's Hans Zimmer. You know what I mean? That's what you get when it's Hans Zimmer. It's kind of a, he, he's a little bit of an experimenter. So he's a kind of a mad scientist. Um, I do have to say though, guys, I don't know if I'm sold on Timothy Chalamet. I just, as a leading man, I think I've said it before. I think he's a great supporting player. Loved him in like little women, loved him in um, Lady Bird. I thought he was great in uh, call me by your name, which was a really good movie. But Lead, and he was kind of was the lead in that, but it was more of a kind of shared. And I thought he got the, the show stolen from him by the guy that played his dad in that movie. So he kind of had that one pulled out right up from under him. But I just, after this movie, this is a starring vehicle for him. I think the role was perfect for him. I think he has this great look for it because he looks very young. And Paul is a spe, you know supposed to be pretty young, scrawny, kind of still coming into his own. Um, so I wonder how his look is going to be for the second part, because Paul, I guess, is supposed to be a good bit older in the second kind of part of the book and a lot more kind of powerful, more sure of himself. But I do think this role in this movie was perfect for him, but I don't look at this as a star-making performance by Timothy Chalamet by any means. I don't think it's going to be Oscar-nominated. I, I don't know. I mean, I could be surprised by that, but I just don't see him getting a leading Oscar nomination, certainly not a win for this performance. And I I think the production called for understated work and Chalamet did that. He was very understated in his role. This is not a bombastic performance. It's not a bombastic movie. So anyone who played it that way would have been anyone who was playing it like, look at me, look how handsome I am. Aren't you lucky to spend time with me on the screen? And that's not what Chalamet does. So I think he worked in that way. If you want it, make me give it to you. Use the voice. Well, I just woke up. Give me a water. 
Now, on the other hand, Zendaya, who I kept seeing on the trailers like crazy, she's only in the movie for like five minutes. So let me just tell you that because she's only in it for like five minutes. But I found her to probably be the most magnetic person in the cast. She was the person I wanted to see more of. And in the second movie, it looks like she will have a much bigger role, it sounds like. But the the cast is really good, and everyone does a good job in it. Oscar Isaac, I mean, when's he ever bad? Josh Brolin is really good in it. Some of the best work I've seen from him in a while. Um, Rebecca Ferguson also, who I feel like never lets you down. I feel like she's kind of underrated, right? Rebecca Ferguson's always good and stuff. Um, I think about her in uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, and... She just kind of stole that movie completely from Tom Cruise and that yellow dress she wore. And she proved to be a great teammate for him. So uh, I just I think Rebecca Ferguson does some really nice work. And she does it again here. She's got a really big part in this movie. Jason Momoa uh, is good. I mean, when don't you like seeing him? He legitimately looks like a different person when he has no facial hair, which he had in this movie. But uh, I was glad to see him smiling and uh, being a bit of a ham because I don't think he gets to do that enough. But uh, how could you not be a ham, I guess, when your character's name is Duncan Idaho? Duncan freaking Idaho. And they say the full name like five times. So that kind of did take me out of it a little bit. But I guess, you know, this was Denny Villeneuve having a little bit of fun. So I'll give him that. But my final thoughts on Dune, I I feel like this is serious storytelling. And I'm always glad to see serious storytelling done at a high budget. Because plenty of directors do serious storytelling on a low budget. And that's kind of the way Hollywood has gone over the years. You know, serious storytelling, dramatic adult drama films used to be big business. And Hollywood would have no problem shelling out tens of millions of dollars on what was basically a drama that was going to be acclaimed and going to do pretty well at the box office. But these days, that really doesn't happen. And it's pretty much the indie labels of the big studios that handle the dramas and the budgets are much smaller uh, and this has led to some more little bit more experimental storytelling and stuff like that but when I get to see a movie like Dune which is done on a massive budget scale and is treated with utmost care and the performances are really dialed in and well done I'm thrilled to see that kind of thing happen and this movie is not so handcuffed to CGI where it feels like you're watching an animated movie as it does when you're watching some of the Marvel films and some of the other, uh, you know, even the Hobbit movies from recent years, which were, you know, somewhat adult. They're still, you know, a little bit more for, for younger ages, but they were, they were mostly for adults, I think, and had some very intense and some very nice sequences in them. I like the Hobbit movies, just for the record. But some of the, they feel like animated movies a lot of times. Dune does not feel that way. Dune feels like a movie shot on location that just happens to have some wild sci-fi shit going on in it. So I was I was happy with that. I'm just glad to see, like I said, major studios spending big on movies like this. Even though the fact that it requires a sequel is a bit of a letdown to me and I think is a symptom of where we are at in movies now. Everything has to have a sequel um, and Dune is included in that. I would rather personally watch a, a great three or three and a half hour movie than watch two two-plus-hour movies that don't stand up on their own as movies that you can watch on their own. I have no problem with sequels, but what I want are movies that stand on their own, and the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies all stand on their own. All six of those stand up on their own as their own movies. You can watch them and be satisfied, even though you know to, to finish the story, you need to you know finish the whole story, but... They all stand on their own. You can watch them and and feel fine. 
But with Dune, I don't think this stands up on its own. I think it requires the second part. So that's kind of a letdown. But uh, I think this went about as well as fans of the book could have hoped, which is really saying a lot when you got a book that's this beloved, this influential, and this big, honestly. So those are my thoughts on Dune. It's now in theaters. Uh, look for it again when it comes back to HBO Max and when it uh, hits you know, Blu-ray and, and rental and all that kind of stuff. And I, I totally recommend you watch it. Even if you know nothing about Dune. Again, I knew nothing about Dune. I went into it totally naked. And I thought the world that they built was fascinating. And I actually was really looking forward to the sequel as soon as it was over. So I, I want to see the sequel. So totally recommend you check it out if you like sci-fi at all. Um, and if you just like big budget drama with some political stuff, uh, with some thoughtful performances, very well done CGI. This is adult filmmaking here, and uh, Denny Villeneuve continues to have one of the best uh, kind of auteur uh, careers of anybody in Hollywood right now. So I'm glad to see him continuing to make projects that he's clearly passionate about and that nobody else really seems to be able to do on such a scale as he's able to do them, and nobody gets the trust of the studios uh, like he gets. So those are my thoughts on Dune. Did you watch it? What'd you think? Hit me up at theclintdavis at gmail.com. Did you feel differently? Are you a fan of the book? Did I murder it with my synopsis? Uh, hit me up, theclintdavis at gmail.com. Now our trade is with Lynn. My lord, you gave your word to the witch. And she sees too much. I said I would not harm them, and I shall not. But Arrakis is Arrakis. And the desert takes the weak. My desert. My Iraqis. Why do? All right, I'm going to toss things over to Andy. Take a breather here. Take a drink. And uh, we'll get right back to it. Coming up after this, I'm going to be talking about Midnight Mass on Netflix. Man, that one really surprised me and knocked me on my ass a little bit. Uh, but uh, I'm going to send it over to Andy now up in Cleveland. Take it away, my friend. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey now, great to be with you. If you have not rated and uh, reviewed this show, 
We'd appreciate it if you would do so. That'll help us stand out. So, like, I don't know if you've noticed, but we are surrounded by conspiracy theories. Freaking conspiracy theories. What is a conspiracy theory? Definition. An unproven theory. My dog is sniffing the microphone, by the way. I don't know if you can hear that. All right. This is what we have to work with. This is why you need to rate and review us so that we can work our way up to better accommodations. What's a conspiracy theory? It is, by definition, an unproven theory that explains an event being a direct result of actions by a covert group or organization. If you go online, there's no shortage of conspiracy theories. All right, so here's one. The virus was bioengineered in a lab by scientists to be used as a weapon or a form of population control. This is a theory former politician Bronwyn Bishop has also suggested. It is to get rid of non-productive um, Chinese in the Chinese community. In the words of George Bernard Shaw, should be eliminated. Um, so they don't have to be fed. Whoa. Roseanne Barr is calling the novel coronavirus pandemic a ploy to kill baby boomers. You know what it is, Norm? I think they're just trying to get rid of all, all my, uh, my generation. I know your mind goes to Trump. There's obviously a good reason for that. At President Trump's rally tonight in Pennsylvania scattered among the crowd are people who believe in some conspiracy theories that are so broad and often bizarre, it's difficult to believe, to put it mildly. It's no longer an isolated thing. Take a look. The sign with a Q on it stands for QAnon. This video is from the presidential rally in Tampa two nights ago. Your shirt says the storm is here, QAnon. What does that mean to you? Well, I've been following all the posts since uh, October 28th. On the Internet from QAnon. Right, the, on the person or people who say they're Q. Right. What do you think Q is, by the way? It's an entity of 10 or less people okay, that have... Um, uh, involved with the government? High, high um, clearance, you know, security clearance. And how do you know that? Well, I'm just telling you, this is what it appears to be. What it appears to be. So you don't have any yeah. proof of that. That's what you're guessing it is. And you don't have any proof there isn't. While conspiracy theories have been around forever, the Trump effect combined with the yuck fest on social media, combined with a major world event like the spread of the COVID-19 pandemic has produced a new hardened era for conspiracy theories. President Trump is attempting to pull his supporters into a state of pandemic denialism, falsely claiming that the rising number of COVID-19 cases are due to increased testing. Assuming that democracy survives, we may one day look back on this as a golden era for conspiracy theories because of the three factors mentioned above. It's had a profound impact on all areas of life, and the music community has not been exempt. It has found its way into music. It has found its way into the brains of the artists that we love. So today we're going to talk about musicians who are also conspiracy theorists. Who are the worst offenders? Who are the weirdest offenders? Can you separate the conspiracy from the music? Should you? Let's get on with it. Get on with it. Yes, get on with it. Yeah! 
Musicians are creative people. They are creative types. Creative types are often not cut from the same cloth as the majority of the electorate. Their minds are reeling. They are looking for a new way of saying things, of conveying things, of connecting with an audience and making sense of this world. You see where I'm going with this? I could argue the basic disposition of an artist makes them prone to conspiratorial thinking. That said, at what point do you say, God, come on, come on, man. Come on, give me a break. Time to leave the uh, tinfoil hat store. Who remembers the rapper B.O.B.? Haven't heard from him in a while. But he had some hits in the early 2010s. I could use a dream or a genie or a wish To go back to a place much simpler than this Cause after all the party and it's smashing and crashing And all the glitz and the glam and the fashion And all the pandemonium and all the madness There comes a time where you fade to the blackness And when you're staring at that phone in your lap And you hoping but them people never call you back B.O.B. believes that the world is flat. He does. In fact, he turned to crowdfunding to raise a bunch of money in order to launch his own satellite to prove the world is flat. Remember MIA? MIA is on the record saying that the CIA kicked saying that the CIA created and continues to operate both Google and Facebook. We all know Demi Lovato. Here she is on the subject of aliens and mermaids. She's speaking to Seth Meyers. No, I, I believe that there could possibly be mermaids, which is a actually an alien species that lives in parts of the Indian Ocean, which we have never explored before as okay. human beings. And Columbus, Christopher Columbus, had actually seen three mermaids on his way to America. Yeah. All right. So. I just think it's it's possible, and there's this like really extremely convincing documentary gotcha. that came out. The Little Mermaid. <laughs> so they get these ideas in their heads whether it be from a a documentary or whatever, and they don't remember that just because an idea is entertaining, that doesn't make it true. It's a cool notion, but that doesn't make it true. Let's talk about Van Morrison. Hey, where did we go? Days when the rains came. Down in the hollow. Playing a new game. Laughing and a running, hey, hey. Skipping and a jumping. In the misty morning fog with all our hearts that thumping and you, my brown eyed girl. And you, my brown eyed girl. Van Morrison was one of the first musicians to speak out against the quarantine, the lockdown, and now most of us recognize that this was something that happened out of a matter of necessity. He did not. He posted on his website the following. 
I call on my fellow singers, musicians, writers, producers, promoters, and others in the industry to fight with me on this. Come forward, stand up, fight the pseudoscience, and speak up. Van Morrison started writing songs about this as well. Here's one called No More Lockdown. No more lockdown, no more government overreach. No more fascist bullies disturbing our peace. No more taking of our freedom. And our God-given rights Pretending it's for our safety When it's really too enslaved This is all more than a little ironic coming from Van Morrison. More than a little ironic. One of Morrison's most touching songs is about a young girl struggling with tuberculosis of all things. TB, of course has more than a little bit in common with COVID-19. It, too, is a disease that's transferred by droplets and affects the lungs and causes fatigue and fever. It's, it's killed millions of people. But we, we have come up with treatment methods for TB. And at one time, Van Morrison seemed sympathetic to those things. In 1967, he wrote this song called TB Sheets. Let me breathe. I said, open up the window. And let me breathe. I'm looking down the street below, Lord. I cried for you. Now he's changed. Has he just been rich and removed from reality for too long? Has he become jaded and more prone to that type of thinking? I don't know. Here's what I do know. Van Morrison is not alone. Eric Clapton agrees with him. Here is Van Morrison and Eric Clapton on a new song, which once upon a time I, well, I would have excited me. But here they are, two giants, on a new song called This Has Gotta Stop. This has gotta stop, enough is enough. I can't take this BS any longer, it's gone far enough. You wanna claim my soul? You'll have to come and break down this door. Never mind the fact that there's no melody and the words don't rhyme. It's a bad song. I can't take this BS any longer. It's gone far enough. If you wanna claim my soul, you'll have to come and break down this door. Eric Clapton has a few conspiracy theories of his own. It seems that he's now far removed from the guy who was revered 
absolutely revered. Yeah, we are a long way from Layla, indeed. Layla got me on my knees, He's arguing against showing proof of vaccination at venues. He's posing pictures with the governor of Texas and lending financial support to the anti-vaccination movement. It's all more than a little bizarre. And just when you think you've heard it all, another artist comes out of the woodwork with a wacky conspiracy theory. Rap superstar Nicki Minaj is one of the best-selling and most popular female artists of all time. But now Minaj has ignited a firestorm for spreading vaccine misinformation, telling her tens of millions of social media followers that her cousin's friend became impotent after getting a shot. Well, that claim has now been debunked and there's no science behind it. It all started Monday night when the unvaccinated singer tweeted, my cousin in Trinidad won't get the COVID vaccine because his friend got it and became impotent. His testicles became swollen. Minaj now says she's going to get the vaccine before she goes on tour. And for this friend of Nikki's cousin, I hate to say it, but if your testicles swell up that big, the question isn't, did you get a vaccine recently? It's what have you been doing to your balls? I mean, that poor guy. Now he's single and swollen, and everyone's asking him if he can hook them up with Nicki Minaj tickets. But if you think something like that would slam the door on conspiracy theories, well, friend, you would be wrong. They are still everywhere. Everywhere. Here is Jason Aldean on stage at a recent concert. Well, you know, the coolest thing about all this, the coolest thing to me right now is that I'm looking out, seeing all you guys, and I don't see one fucking mask. Let's hear that again and, and listen to the crowd. And I don't see one fucking mask. So popular music is filled with with conspiracy theorists, and it runs the gamut. I I just gave you examples in pop, country, and and classic rock. It's not beholden to any one genre. It, It is everywhere. If the question is, why do people believe conspiracy theories, the question you're really asking is, why do people believe anything? And the answer is, for a lot of reasons. There isn't just one factor. And it would be easy if we could pin it on one thing, like, oh, it was Twitter made everyone believe this, or they were dropped on their head, or they happen to fit a particular demographic, or they have some psychological problem. But that's not going to explain most beliefs for most people. I told Clint about the segment that that I was doing, and he said that so much of it is just about how these folks are are so rich and nobody is checking them on anything. They're surrounded by by yes-men and lapdogs who just kind of give the thumbs up to whatever they say. And that's probably accurate. My question to you, the listener, is how much is too much? How weird is too weird? I'll say this. As a listener, I don't think you should feel compelled to boycott an artist. Listen again. 
you shouldn't feel compelled to do it. If an artist crosses a line and you just cannot listen to that music without thinking of their, their weird-ass ideas, then, then screw them, then, then be done with them. But not all songs come from the same place. Layla came from a different place than the song This Has Gotta Stop. Two different songs coming from two different origins in a person's brain. What I do know is that if you're only going to listen to artists who you feel you'd personally get along with, well, then you're, you're limiting yourself. Take it song by song, artist by artist, album by album. Like, I, I don't like Ted Nugent's politics, but I can appreciate that riff in Cat Scratch Fever. That doesn't have anything to do with his politics. I don't like Hank Jr.'s politics, but I love the song Born to Boogie. Now before I could walk, I had a guitar in my hand. By the time I could talk, I had my own band. I went on the road when I was eight years old. When I turned 15, I was stealing the show. Money to burn and the girls are pretty. Didn't take me long to learn that I was born to boogie. I relate with Born to Boogie. I don't relate to his politics. Both things can be true at the same time. It's similar to how you love your Uncle Jim, but he drives you nuts when he parrots Fox News. Both of those things are true. These days, you have to compartmentalize. Otherwise, we, we further uh, devolve into our own little tribes, and, and, and we don't need to become more tribal. We do not need to become more tribal. But you know the weirdest beliefs among musicians? I mean, the absolute weirdest? In my mind, there's a tie between two. And I don't know if these are necessarily conspiracy theories, more just like weird beliefs. But musicians are can be odd people, right? They're outsiders. By nature, they're outsiders. So like I say, weirdest beliefs, tie between two. Here's the first, Axl Rose. Let's hear a little bit of Guns N' Roses before we get into this. Weird beliefs of Axl Rose. Rose believes that the letter M is bad luck. The letter M, he says, is bad luck. And he believes that cities that begin with the letter M are unlucky places. Reportedly, he tries to avoid cities that start with the letter M when the band is touring. I was intrigued by this, so I looked at Guns N' Roses' touring schedule. Sure enough... There are no cities on it that start with the letter M with the exception of one, Melbourne, Australia. So is that a conspiracy theory? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe not. May, may want to file that one under superstition. Now, here's the other weird story about a musician's beliefs uh, that, that, that I, I just I cannot get over. So weird. And it comes from David Bowie, one of my favorite artists ever. <laughs> I mean, one of my favorites. I mean, I go through stretches where all I listen to is Bowie. This can go off for weeks. It's just Bowie, Bowie, Bowie. 
But David Bowie, back in the mid-1970s, told friends, who later told the press, that he believed witches were stalking him and trying to steal his semen in order to impregnate themselves. Let me say that again. He believed that witches were stalking him not to kill him, but to steal his semen so that they could have his children. I'm afraid of America. Now, this was at the height of his addiction to cocaine. And what does cocaine do? It stokes paranoia. Here's David Bowie talking about those days after after he got clean. By the mid-70s, I was so, uh, so out of my gourd that really it was very impossible. It was all nigh on impossible for me to function in, in any rational way. David Bowie, ladies and gentlemen. Now, before I get out of here, we do have some breaking news. Let's get to that now. In the time that I've been talking to you, I see that Kid Rock has released a new song. It's called Don't Tell Me How to Live. And it goes right along with what we were talking about. So there's that. Years ago, we all thought it was a joke. See, that every kid got a motherfucking trophy. But yo, homie, here's a situation. A nation of pussies is our next generation. And these minions and their agendas. Every opinion has a millennial offended. This amendment one, it rings true And if you don't descend, bitch, the see number two Ain't nothing new, right, church, wrong, pew Get a clue, a crew, your fake news and views Can all get the bottom of my motherfucking shoe I'm the last of a few, still screaming, fuck you He works in references to both snowflakes and fake news Jesus If that's too much for you, I get it. But it is possible in my mind to say that's ridiculous and still appreciate a song like Only God Knows Why. Regardless, conspiracy-related music goes on and on, even as we speak. All right, friends, we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. You can find it and enjoy it on Spotify by searching Stream Police. Every month we add five more songs. And here are your five for November. First, it's Goodbye Jimmy Reed by Bob Dylan. Clint, my friend, it never sounded better than when it echoed off of the porcelain. Here we go. They threw everything at me, everything in the book. I had nothing to fight with. But a butcher's hook They had no pity They never lend a hand I can't sing a song That I don't understand Goodbye Jimmy Reed Goodbye good luck I can't play the record Cause my needle got stuck Second I give you My Baby Blue By the great John Hyatt
Saw Hyatt uh, in concert recently as well. What a great, great body of work. Next, switching gears, it's Mrs. Officer by Lil Wayne. Bobby Valentino. <laughs> she got me thinking I could date a cop <laughs> Cause her uniform pants was so tight She read me my rights She put me in a car She cut off all the lights She said I had the right To remain silent Now I got a hollering Sounding like a siren Talking about Yeah 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 Then, sticking with hip-hop Follow the Leader by Eric B. and Rakim <laughs> Follow me into our solo, get in the flow, and you can picture like a photo. Music makes mellow, maintains and make melodies for MCs, motivates to break some everlasting. I can go on for days and days with rhyme displays that engrave deep as x-rays. I can take a phrase that's rarely heard, flip it, now it's a daily word. I can get iller than all, I'm killing bomb, but no alarm. Rock him or remain calm. Self-esteem make me super superb and supreme. Before a microphone, still I fiend. This was a tape. I wasn't supposed to break. I was supposed to wait, but let's motivate. I wanna see him keep following and swallowing. Taking the making, biting the following. Rubbers try another die to get the formula. But I'ma let you sweat, you still ain't. And finally, it's 16 tons. This version by the platters. So People say a man is made out of mud. A poor man made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood, skin and bone. A mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You know, sixteen guns and what are you getting? Another day older and deeper and dense. And Peter, don't you call me, cause I can go. I owe my suit to the company's door. I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine. I picked up the shovel and walked to the mine. I rode sixteen guns from Numberland to Lamarstown. Paul said, "Bella, bless my suit. You rode sixteen guns, and what are you getting?" All right, friends. That's it. Thanks so much. I'm going to throw it back to Clint. Take care of yourselves, stay healthy, and behave. Okay, see ya. Five more great songs. Check them out on the playlist on Spotify. Honestly, I don't know that I've ever heard bass singing done lower than it is on that platters version of 16 tons i love that um i've heard that one before and it's just like that is so that is rattling your subwoofer when that guy is singing i don't even know how you get down that low um and of course goodbye jimmy reed ringing off the porcelain that one really hit me that one hit me i will never every time i hear that song now i will never forget i don't think i could forget about that night anyway but again thank you andy for uh, your segment and thank you for your your care that night when 
we were up watching Bob, or when you were watching Bob and I was hearing him from the bathroom at least. You know what I realized during that break? I didn't even light my stogie up. Usually I sit here in my closet in Columbus, Ohio. I didn't even tell you that. I sit in my closet in Columbus, Ohio. I talk to you on this microphone, and I light a stogie to set the ambience of the room. But I didn't do that, so let me do it now. All right, now we're really, really rolling here on the Stream Police podcast. Okay, so... Since the last time we spoke, and I mentioned it on the last show, I told you that I was starting Midnight Mass, and I had watched the first episode of the show uh, last time we spoke, and I was really like, this does not feel like horror at all. I think I actually said that. I said, this just feels like a drama. But oh boy, was it a horror at the end of the day. And and I knew it was going to be horror, obviously, because it was written and directed by the great Mike Flanagan, and I do think he deserves being called the great at this point. I have raved and raved about his work on this show over the last few years. It started, obviously, for me, with The Haunting of Hill House, which I still put up there as some of the best TV that Netflix has ever done and some of the best television horror that I have ever seen done by anybody. I I was blown away. Haunting of Bly Manor. Yeah, you know, it was a definite step down from that. Definitely felt more derivative. I was not as big a fan of it as I was of The Innocence, the uh, movie version of the same story that came out back in the day. Truman Capote wrote the script for. But it was still, you know, it was still good. It was still better than average. Um, And it had good acting in it, which is a staple of a Mike Flanagan work. But I also raved on this show about Dr. Sleep, the long, long awaited sequel to The Shining um, with Ewan McGregor. And Mike Flanagan is the one who brought that to the screen. And I just thought he did a tremendous job with a movie that was long awaited by a lot of people. And Stephen King adaptations are just notoriously they're. They're either awful or awesome, usually. You know, actually, that's not even true. A lot of them are just kind of middle ground, and you just forget about them. Uh, but this one was really, really good. It was the best you know, King adaptation I had seen in a long time, and I still count it as one of my favorite horror movies, and I just thought the acting was so good, and I thought it was a great way to do a sequel to a beloved property. So I'm a great lover of Mike Flanagan here on the stream police. And so I went into midnight mass being excited because it was his latest project, but man, I did not know what was going to await me in this show. I had no idea of what happened and I suggest you do the same. And I am going to do my best not to spoil anything about midnight mass in my review of the show. I'm going to try to keep this very spoiler free, but the the one thing I will say is, I wasn't sure where the horror angle was going to come from until it was glaringly obvious. And then I was like, oh, shit. And Beth and I were watching this together. And we're just like running down in our heads all the ways that this could go real bad real fast. And the show does that. And it goes bad in a hurry. So it starts out, the the show is set on this you know, little fishing island in New England. And it's uh, a very tight-knit community. The only way to get to this place is by a ferry that comes twice a day. uh, And everyone on the island knows everyone else. They've all lived there for generations, with the exception of this new sheriff 
who has come to town and he's a Muslim. Of course, everyone else that lives there pretty much is white. There's a couple of non-white people on the Island, but certainly no Muslims because all of them go to this Catholic church that's on the Island. So this Catholic church is like the main deal on the whole Island. It is the power spot. So, you know, this sheriff's a pretty big outsider, but he's doing his best to ingratiate himself with the people. Doesn't carry a gun. Doesn't want to seem like a threat to anybody. Doesn't want to scare anybody, you know, and uh, he's got his son with him. So they're the kind of outsiders on this island. But then along comes another outsider who grew up on the island, but then went and, and lived in the city and and kind of, you know, messed his entire life up when he was getting into finance, but got into an accident, a drunk driving crash, and killed a girl and went to prison for a while. And now he's out and he's back at the island living at his parents' house. So he's a big-time outsider. And so these are the kind of, these are our surrogates coming into this island because we're obviously not insiders. Um, But anyway, everything gets weird when this new priest shows up on the island to take over the church because it's been led by the same old priest for generations. He's been there forever. He's like in the fabric of the community, this guy is. But he's too old and he's gotten sick, so he's off on the mainland, as they keep saying. And this new young priest has taken his place And he is a very enigmatic, interesting guy, to say the least. And he's just got this magnetism and this power to him that everyone kind of notices. He is intense with a capital I, but also approachable, which is a a, a very unique mix. But I got to say, man, this show surprised me in so many ways, and I was so impressed with everything about it, especially the writing and the acting, which when we're talking about horror projects, writing and acting are not the things that we're usually raving about. When I talk about my favorite horror projects, you know, generally gore is a big one for me. I want it to be like realistic looking kind of gore that makes me almost want to get sick. I love that because it's impressive to me. I told you about that last month when I was running down some of the best horror movies that were streaming all across the web right now. And that's why I love movies like Midsummer, because the gore is just off the charts crazy. And the story is so dark that it just makes you feel kind of ill when it's all said and done. And you feel so trapped with these characters. Um, but Midnight Mass is pretty gory. And there were some parts that like if you don't like blood, then this is definitely not a show for you. This is not a PG-13 horror. This is hard R if it was in theaters uh, for sure. It is downright nasty in a few of the spots and mostly because of blood and um, things to do with blood that will really, really gross you out. Uh, So anyway, again, I'm not going to give anything away as far as what the horror element is, because I think it's so well done as far as what, where the surprise comes from that I don't even want to tell you what, what it is that's going to be scaring you in this show. But let me say this show goes places like on matters like religion. It hits religion hard. It is the, this show is plumbing the depths, and, and Mike Flanagan clearly is wrestling with some stuff in his own life, I think, as a kid, probably grown up Catholic, I'm imagining, and kind of wrestling with what that means as he gets older and older. Um, and the things he was told, and does he still believe them? Does he still hold on to them? This show goes to that territory, and a lot of shows don't go into that territory, and I think it goes there in a meaningful way. 
and not in a one-sided obvious way it's it's very like it, it's thoughtful and i think this show does a great job and i've told you before i'm a raging atheist not like i don't believe in anything as far as a, an organized religion goes that stuff makes me just feel gross whenever i think about it it makes me mad so i come at it from totally like the far anti religion atheist side honestly um but this show did a great job of showing to me you know why people like i totally get why people believe that stuff Totally get it. And this show, I think, does a nice job of explaining with one very smart character why people believe in that stuff, but it also shows why it's dangerous, and it also shows very well, I think it goes from the other side, the side I come from, why people don't believe in that stuff, and why that's not a character deficiency. It's just a, a matter of your perspective on things. So um, I really thought the show kind of hit all sides of that well, um, and hitting all sides of something like that is hard to do because it's such a heated and personal subject. Um, and everybody's got their own kind of thoughts on it. And I don't know where Flanagan comes down, but uh, I think he wrote this in a really deep way that, that does it meaningfully uh, and doesn't just treat it as a throwaway or an easy thing to like shock you. So I was impressed by that. It also touches on stuff like forgiveness, deep personal trauma, um, you know, many shows just don't go into this stuff, especially in such a short period. This is only a seven-episode show. It's a mini-series, one-off, seven episodes. And I just think that I feel like Mike Flanagan must have been really holding on to Midnight Mass until he had some serious clout at some kind of network or studio, and he got to really do it his way because this is the kind of show that it feels like he's been ruminating on for a while. He's had his ideas of how to tell it. But it would be hard to convince a studio to spend a lot of money to make this um, because of the stuff he's going in on. And I think it feels like he got to tell this story his way, and I, it feels like a passionate a passion project for him. And I think, I think he did it justice, honestly. There's some really unflinching storytelling here, and I found myself getting really invested in these characters over the course of just seven hours of storytelling. The mysteries are what keep you hooked in the first couple episodes because there really are some good mysteries. Like, what in the hell was in that trunk that this priest is dragging and it's, like, shaking? What the fuck was in that thing? And what happened to those cats? And why is this a horror show? What is going to happen here? You get that feeling of dread that you get with really good horror. Um, that's what keeps you hooked for, the, for about the first two, maybe three episodes. But then after that, the mysteries become pretty clear. It becomes pretty clear where this is going and what is happening on this island and where it's probably going to go. You can put the pieces together for yourself. But by that point, you're so into the characters and the possibilities of where it could go that you're still gripped. So you don't need the mystery to keep dragging along. And it is all done satisfyingly. The ending is satisfying. It wraps up. You don't need... There's not going to be a sequel. So again, that's refreshing. Um, and I just... Loved that because, again, my complaints with Dune were that it, it it relies on a sequel. And this is one of these things where it's just over. And that's always a nice thing, I think, because we got too much shit going on. And plus, this story is grim. So you're kind of like, yeah, I'm ready to get away from this island because this place is fucking sad. This is heavy, heavy, heavy stuff. That's not I the understand. Issue. Given your religious affiliation, you might find the fact that your son is interested in the Bible 
offensive. Not at I all. I suppose. But I would say that if he is interested in Jesus, why not allow him to learn a little about That's it? That's so not the issue. And thank you for this opportunity to clarify. Uh, he knows all about Jesus. Well, I imagine not quite all. Muslims believe that Jesus is a prophet of God and that the Injil, the Bible, was revealed to him as the Torah was revealed to Moses before that. See, we, we love Jesus, and we love the message that was revealed to him. Well, <laughs> I suppose we learn something new every day, don't we? But we also believe, after the time of Jesus, thanks to the interference of men, there were deviations in Christianity. People altered the message, priests, popes, kings. That's why there's so, so many versions of the Bible. People got in there, made their changes. I don't think this is relevant. We do, though, believe that the Bible contains some of the original word of God. That's very generous of you. But we also believe that God revealed the Quran as the final message, never to be altered, to reassert the original revelations of the previous prophets. I don't think that this is the place to discuss where our beliefs about Scripture might diverge. Exactly. There it is. That's the issue. And that's why I think some of the people in this room, including myself, are a little concerned. See, Muslims encourage everyone to seek knowledge. So I am more than comfortable with my son studying a Bible. Thrilled, actually. I've done it myself. But where I think there's an issue is that this is a public school. The big thing I got to talk about on Midnight Mass, I I was blown away by the writing, but it's the acting. And I think the performance at the center of the whole thing was this phenomenal piece of work done by Hamish Linklater, who's a guy that, look him up and you'll probably recognize him. You've probably seen him in something else. He's a character player to this point, but man, I think he's, his career is going to get a boost after this because he was just tremendous in easily the most demanding performance, the most demanding character of the whole piece. And I think Flanagan chose well and Linklater gave him everything he had. This is Emmy-level stuff, I'm telling you, that Hamish Linklater does in this show. Would not be shocked at all to see him win an Emmy for this performance for, like, limited series lead actor because, or probably supporting actor he would be because he is so goddamn good in this show. The way he plays the priest, the weirdo priest in Midnight Mass that I said, you know, kind of is at the center of all these strange things that are happening. And the way that Linklater delivers the sermons in the the church scenes is so magnetic. I was just breathless. I wanted to hear everything he was going to say. I thought I believed him completely. And then he quiets down and he has these serious discussions, like counseling different characters and having AA meetings with other characters at, at the church. Um, and he plays these scenes with so much weight. I mean, this is a guy that I bought from minute one that he was on screen, and when the story gets really wild, and let me tell you, it gets wild as the thing goes on. This is not like it starts out as something very kind of almost folksy and like, oh, it's you know a nice character drama. We're going to get into the... It's like Winesburg, Ohio. You feel like it's going to be like, oh, we're going to get into the lives of all these different stories of these people on this island. And then it just goes nuts in the last few episodes. I'm telling like off the chain, insane. And when the story gets crazy and unwieldy and wild, Hamish Linklater keeps it grounded the whole time. I was just floored by his work here and would love to see him win an award for this and have riches bestowed upon him because I think he he just 
killed it. So his his acting, if you're an acting lover, you got to watch this because it's you're watching really a phenomenal piece of acting at the center of it from Hamish Linklater in Midnight Mass. Again, he plays the priest in the show. There were some other really good performances throughout the cast. There was nobody who I thought dragged it down. But I really liked a couple of the other actors. Samantha Sloyan was played this lady who is like the nosy church lady in town, and she is just such a nasty villain. Easily one of the nastiest villains you'll see on TV this year. Just downright chilling as she kind of goes from like a regular busybody asshole that you've seen in other stuff before to someone who is legitimately dangerous to a community this small where she has some weight. And she does that in the course of about seven hours, and it's 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 great. It's very well done. So Samantha Sloyan was very good, too. Um, I could see her even getting a nomination because she's so unforgettable and just dominates when she's on screen without really raising her voice or doing anything too crazy, and she's wearing very boring clothing. Uh, but she is just so chilling with the way she looks at the different characters and the way she talks to them. There's so much judgment behind everything she says. Uh, I also love Zach Guilford. I thought he did a great job. He plays the lead role, Riley, who is the guy who, like I said, um, gets in the drunk driving crash and goes to jail and then has to uh, uh, come back home to the island despite planning on never basically going back there again. Um, and he does some really good work exploring like, kind of what makes his character tick. He has a lot of one-on-one scenes with Hamish Linklater that are some really good back and forths. Um, between these two characters. So I was impressed by him as well. Also, Raul Coley, who played the sheriff, he played, um, I really liked him here. He played a very different role than he did in The Haunting of Blind Manor. If you remember that show, he actually is the guy who played the cook. And if you remember him, he was like a mama's boy. You know, every night had to go home to his mom. He was a very just like nice, sweet, soft-spoken guy. He was, the like I said, the cook at the mansion and was just a nice guy, really. Um, and here it's like, he's got a beard in this show and he plays a dad and it's like, he's aged 20 years in the course of these two years that have happened between these two projects. He just plays such a more, such an older, more seasoned, more like, um, you know, just layered character here than he did in that one. And I thought he did it was again, some real weight. So I was impressed by Coley. Uh, as well. Shout out to him. And I also want to give a, a shout out to Robert Longstreet. He's the guy who played Joe, who was like the town drunk. Um, and I just, his performance broke my heart. I thought he was so good. He was so real pained in his performance. I just wanted to like hug him and I wanted to see much more of him in this show. So Robert Longstreet, a uh, big shout out to him as well. I, I really, really loved his work. I'm raving about it, but was Midnight Mass perfect? I got to say, I think it was pretty close. Pretty close to perfect in my eyes. Um, you know, miniseries is one of those uh, is one of those genres that I feel like you can do perfect. It, it can be done because, uh, you know, you've, you don't have the limitations of a, of a movie. You don't have the open-ended, you know, demands of having to come back with new stories like you do of a regular TV series. I just think miniseries is the place to go if you've got a real good story to tell. And Midnight Mass is a really good story, and I think I'm glad that Flanagan did it as a as a, an original miniseries because this is a novel. I think this could definitely have been a novel, and I'm sure he thought of it that way as well. But my biggest issue with the show was the makeup work, which I found to be obvious. 
Um, because what they do is they age several characters a lot. They age them heavily with makeup. And this actually tipped me off to something that I thought was going to happen in the story. You know, by the time the first episode was over, I'm like, okay, there's only one reason why you would age characters that heavily. When, you know, you could have just cast old people instead of casting young people and aging them with makeup, which is such a clumsy thing usually to do. And, of course, I was right as far as the reason why they were going to do that. And, you know, it kind of gives away part of the story and, and one of the big surprises because you're really expecting it because you can just tell it's makeup. And there could have been ways I think they could have shot it um, that would have made it less obvious. Maybe the makeup itself could have just been better because the makeup was not up to snuff with what the rest of the show was doing. Um, now, there there is some makeup on some other you know, people, creatures in the show that I think is really well done. But as far as the old age makeup, yeah, you know, little dicey, little dicey to me. It kind of looked like Back to the Future 2 aging makeup from like 30 years ago. Um, it's always dicey, I think, to age actors with makeup. And here it, it did take me out of the story in the early episodes because I'm just sitting there staring. I'm like, why? Clearly this is like a 20-year-old person that they're trying to make look 80. So why would they do that? Oh, is it because they're going to... And yes, I was right as far as why, and you'd probably be able to figure it out for yourself as well. But you've just got to watch this show. Midnight Mass it is high-level horror storytelling. It's high-level storytelling, period. But for horror, we don't get storytelling like this in TV. We get those half-baked you know, stories that, that FX's American Horror Story comes out with, which they get a good premise but they cannot sustain it for 10 episodes and keep it interesting. And the characters are always just, you know, paper thin and they're just silly. And it's like, they've got a couple good things in mind that they're going to do. And then that's it. That's all. They don't think any more about it. They just got to crank one out every year, but this is some high level, well thought out years in the making kind of writing storytelling. And I think it sets itself up like a drama early on before turning the corner straight into straight horror territory and never going back at all. And I just, again, have to say Mike Flanagan, I think he's just a phenomenal filmmaker, clearly, and a great writer. But I think his real talent is that he seems to just be one of those directors that can get performances out of his cast. Some directors, every time you watch one of their movies, it's why I love Paul Thomas Anderson. He gets a performance out of his actor that is on par with the best that they've ever done in their careers. Just something that he does. He just gets them comfortable or he knows how to push them to get to that place that these great actors can do. And you watch like Tom Cruise in Magnolia and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Or you watch Daniel Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood or in Phantom Thread. And even, you know, Adam Sandler in Punch Drunk Love. And it's just, this is something that, that, Anderson is great at, and Mike Flanagan, I think, is one of those directors. I think he just gets performances from his actors. They must love him or really trust him or whatever, because I think he gets him to dig deep, and he did it with Ewan McGregor in uh, Dr. Sleep, and he's done it in all these seasons of The Haunting of whatever, and he really did it here in Midnight Mass because the, the cast was was great from top to bottom. And this is some uncomfortable territory that they cover as well. But I was blown away. I loved it. I think it's one of the best things I've seen on Netflix ever. So thank you again to Mike Flanagan for continuing to pump out great horror content because uh, we need it. We need great horror storytellers, and he's really right there at the forefront. He's, he's one of them. He is firmly in the club. And Midnight Mass is his latest, possibly his greatest work 
as well. I don't know if I like it as much as The Haunting of Hill House, but I might. I actually might like it more, to be completely honest with you, because it really surprised me even more than that one did. And I think it might even have some better replay value, maybe. So anyway, check it out on Netflix. I know it's past the season, but this is some great storytelling. You really need to watch it. And if you are holding off, then, you know, watch it next Halloween. But get around to it, because Midnight Mass is great. I give it my highest recommendations that I can. Body of Christ, Lisa. Amen. Come on, body of Christ. Father, what are you doing? Body of Christ. What are you doing? Come on. Body of Christ. No, stop it. It that's cruel. Come on. Lisa, no, honey, what is wrong with you? If this is a joke, Father, it, it's not funny. I Lisa. Oh. oh. All right, before you, I give you some uh, uh, movies streaming now on Netflix, Prime Video, Hulu, and HBO Max, I want to tell you about the best thing I watched this month. And Midnight Mass was right up there, but I always like to keep this a movie. So the best movie I watched this month is actually a movie I've seen probably three other times before this, three or four other times before this, a movie that I've always liked. Chris Columbus's Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone from 2001, the first Harry Potter film. And this was the best thing I watched this month because HBO Max has a brand new for like the 20, 20th anniversary of the movie coming out. Warner Brothers put together a magical movie mode is what it's called. And you'll see it on sale right now. You can find it on Blu-ray. And what magical movie mode is, is it's the whole it's the movie as you've seen it. But it will also throw in supplements during the movie. So like they will they'll throw in some deleted scenes, which are clearly marked. Like you don't have to guess, was this added in or not added in? Like it's it, it tells you when they're gonna happen. There's also trivia that happens throughout the movie down at the bottom of the screen, facts that pop up that are really interesting. Chris Columbus pops in several times during really good scenes and tells you stories from making the the making of the movie, which I actually thought were good stories and weren't just like crap. And Chris Columbus is actually pretty engaging when he talks, unlike a lot of filmmakers. So um I just loved this. This was a great way to watch Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. So if you, I think, but obviously it's only for people who've seen it because it does cut up, cut over some of the dialogue when Columbus is talking. So you miss some parts of the movie if you haven't seen it. Um, but if you've watched Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone before and you like that movie, watch this magical movie mode version because it's really a great way to do a rewatch kind of uh, extra version of of the of a film which i think a lot of companies have tried to do and inserted you know you know new cuts and inserted director's cut material and stuff like that but this was really cool and it was really fun and it felt like they actually put some time into it and the little animations they made uh that go with the trivia questions and stuff like that it all felt like it was done with care and it, it felt like it was it was actually this was worth spending a little bit of extra money to buy this new version of the movie. So your mileage may vary, but I was really impressed. I, I just love the movie anyway. I think it's so 
magical is the obvious word to use, but he really makes it come to life. And I think if that first movie doesn't pull off what it needs to pull off, then who knows what would have happened? Because we're talking about eight movies here, you know, eight big, big budget movies and everything had to go right. And I think Chris Columbus really did handle it. Now, I mean, is he the most artistic filmmaker of all time? Obviously not. But the guy knows how to put together crowd pleasers. I mean, come on. He did the Home Alone films, for Christ's sake. Um, and he just knows how to make magic on screen, I think, and make memorable movies. And Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone is about as memorable as kids' movies get. And I love it. I'm a great lover of that film, and I think this magical movie mode is awesome. You can stream it right now on HBO Max. You can stream the movie normally, or you can stream it with magical movie mode. And I totally recommend watching it that way because uh, I loved it. But uh, anyway, that was the best thing I watched this month. All right, now let's talk about some stuff streaming on Netflix, Prime Video, Hulu, and HBO Max. I always like to give you something, both sides of the coin, something light, something dark. Not necessarily something funny and something intense, but something light, something dark in mood. So on Netflix, first off, uh, we're going to go with the 1990s comedy classic Tommy Boy, starring the late, great Chris Farley. This movie never gets old to me. It's one of the quintessential road movie buddy pictures. Two of my favorite subgenres of comedy come together. Spade and Farley had such great chemistry together. It is undeniable. There's, you know, I think the sky was the limit with them making films together. They were like the modern day Abbott and Costello, if you ask me. Um, and it's sad that they only got to make two. Uh, but Tommy Boy is the greatest and uh, of the two. And Rob Lowe is really good and nasty in it. And uh, Bo Derek is awesome. And, of course, Brian Dennehy just makes the most of every minute of screen time that he has. And it's not a lot, but he really, really makes it count. I love Tommy Boy, and it is streaming now on Netflix. Um, it's one of those movies I can watch anytime. Speaking of movies I can watch anytime, also on Netflix, something very dark, Desperado, the Robert Rodriguez uh, sequel to his breakout indie classic, El Mariachi. And this one stars uh, Antonio Banderas, Selma Hayek at her absolute sizzling sexiest. And Banderas is so sexy in this movie, too. This movie, like, they have a sex scene in this movie. And Jesus Christ, I mean, it's like set fire to the cinema. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you feel like you did get into one of those porn theaters at Times Square back in the day when you're watching these two go at it in this film because just that much sex should not be allowed on screen. And the music building up behind it, like Robert Rodriguez is so gifted at style um, and at just making things um, you know, just pop off the screen. And Desperado, to me, is his masterpiece. It's one of the great masterpieces of action cinema i think of the last 30 years i put it right up there with anything i put it right up there with die hard with hard boiled with any of that stuff desperado to me is as good as it gets uh with for action movies so give it a watch even if you've never seen el mariachi doesn't matter at all it stands totally uh on its own and it's just a cool cool movie the music is phenomenal great soundtrack i love this movie uh it's one of those you want to crank up also, uh, streaming now on Amazon Prime Video, something light for you, uh, Grumpy Old Men. This is actually streaming on IMDb TV, which is available through Prime Video. So if you don't have an Amazon Prime subscription, you can watch the IMDb TV movies for free. It's kind of like Tubi, if you have Tubi. 
the catch is that you have to watch ads, usually probably like eight minutes of ads total throughout the course of the movie. So it's still better than watching a movie on TV, uh, and it's uncensored, so that's good. Um, but Grumpy Old Men is just timeless, hilarious, Lemon and Mathow, Burgess Meredith, um, you know, it's 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 really it's a cool movie. It, I'm glad that it happened. It's one of those movies that I'm glad got made because, you know, I mean, these are two actors that just caught lightning in a bottle together so many times. And to see them be old and play old and play off of that, you know, the jokes, a lot of low hanging fruit. But I think Lemon and Mathau are so phenomenally talented as actors that they're able to, like, make it into art. These easy, low hanging jokes about being grumpy old men. Uh, it's a it's a really a much better movie than it has any business being. So check that out now on Prime Video. So funny. Maybe you didn't get around to it back in the day. This was a VHS classic. Uh, it's a total family pleaser too. To, uh, also, so if you have the holidays coming up, flip on Grumpy Old Men. Everybody can get into that. It's a wintertime movie, so it'll work for Christmas. Also on Prime Video, let's give you something a little bit darker than Grumpy Old Men. How about 2007's Atonement? A critical darling, um, and I'm going to be honest, one of the biggest bummers that I've ever seen in a movie. My wife, Beth, she is like notoriously, she's like made out of stone, honestly. I have watched so many movies and shows with her over the years and cannot, uh, with the exception of anything that involves a dog being hurt or dying, that always gets her, but... I cannot honestly, like, I can count on one hand the number of times that I have ever seen her be dist- be ups- distraught, totally the wrong word, be upset at all, be moved at all by a movie or a story on screen. Atonement is one of those. She was so broken down by this movie, she cried, and I cannot think of very many movies ever that have ever made her cry. Um, this movie is, is, a, is a supremely sad when it gets to its ending, and it's a very well-done, well-acted Good piece of, again, adult drama storytelling. A rare breed these days. So uh, it's a period piece, too. So I think the romantics might like it out there. It's got a good love story, and it's just uh, some really good work by Kira Knightley done right at the top. And a young Saoirse Ronan pops up as well, even though she's not a very likable character, which I don't appreciate. But Atonement is streaming now on Prime Video. Let's go over to Hulu now. If you got Hulu, something light for you there. One of the uh, classic Bill Murray vehicles, What About Bob? This movie has, you know, I had to put it on here. Again, I I, I don't want to just talk about Beth the whole time, but this is absolutely one of her favorites. And if I didn't put What About Bob on here, um, you know, she might have asked for a divorce, honestly. This is one of her favorite comedies ever. Uh, it's one of those movies that I had never seen, actually, but she got me into it, and it really is a perfect vehicle for Murray's talents. And Richard Dreyfus is such a pompous dickhead he plays like this you know very self-important therapist who takes on the the character played by bill murray as a patient and bill murray's character is pretty unhinged um but in a totally like safe and fun way um and anyway long story short dreyfus and his family are on vacation so murray hops a bus and joins them on vacation because he can't be without his therapist for this particular period of his life so it's a it's it's just Really, a lot of great, you know, visual gags and a lot of good lines in this movie and a lot of good sparring between Dreyfus uh, and Bill Murray as well. So what about Bob streaming now on Hulu? Really funny. Nice movie to just 
turn on and enjoy your night with. Uh, something dark on Hulu. The Hunger Games series. All four of the Hunger Games movies now are streaming for you. You can stop after the first two, honestly, because the last two were pretty crappy, um, which I was so let down by because I loved the first two. So I saw all four of these in theaters, really liked them, never read the books, but loved the movies. I thought Jennifer Lawrence was so good. And I thought the first two movies were just, they blew me away. Really good pieces of action cinema. Um and really impressive special effects spectacles, but then the last two, you know, just get, it got too serious, and it was like turned to try to turn to a straight drama and be kind of inspirational, and it was just it, it was too much. I don't think they were up for all that. So, but uh, the whole series is streaming right now on Hulu. If you missed the Hunger Games series, because you might they might have slipped under your radar back in the day, you might have thought they were just for the teenagers, but they weren't. They're, they're pretty cool, pretty badass movies too. Finally, on HBO Max, lots of great movies to pick from there. I'm telling you that the selection on HBO Max is so stellar. Something light for you. I guess you would count Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the magical movie mode on there, which uh, I told you was the best thing I watched this month. So you can watch that if you want. But I'm also going to throw at you 1997's Private Parts, which was the movie version of Howard Stern's first uh, autobiography about his early days in the radio business and his rise to fame. Stern plays himself in a really weird piece of casting because he had never done any acting. Paul Giamatti is in this also, plays a really nasty part. Um, and it's, Stern does a great, does great work. I just think the movie is phenomenal. I, I'm a radio nerd, so I love all the behind-the-scenes radio stuff that happens, but I just think it's a really funny uh, and interesting kind of character study as it chronicles his 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 kind of rise to fame. So check it out. And maybe you're not a Stern fan, but I don't think you really need to be. I think you'll like it anyway. Uh, maybe it'll turn you into a Stern fan. Who knows? Maybe it'll convert some people out there. So Private Parts is streaming now on HBO Max. But something dark for you on HBO Max, and boy, it doesn't get a whole lot darker than this. 1994's Natural Born Killers. Uh, this was... Oliver Stone at his best. This movie is so unsettling, deeply unsettling, hard to watch for some people. Uh, it is a total experimental ride. I'm still floored that this got major distribution in theaters because it is a wild fucking movie. Um, and Woody Harrelson, Juliette Lewis, Robert Downey Jr., um, tons of other great performances. Tom Sizemore is really nasty, as he usually is in this movie. And uh, not, there's truly nothing like Natural Born Killers. It is a mind-blowing movie. I, I've never forgotten it from the first time I watched it. And it's one of those I go back to every couple years and still just knocks me on my ass. It's got so much to say about so many different things. It's kind of a mess, but it is a ride. And it is the kind of movie that only someone with the power of Oliver Stone and the clout at that point that he had in Hollywood could have made. Uh, with the backing of a major studio, because it goes to some very dark and dingy and awful places. So check out Natural Born Killers, streaming now on HBO Max. All right, that's going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. My friend, it's lovely hanging out with you here. I love seeing you here every month. Thanks for stopping in. Uh, and uh, thanks again to my friend and yours, Andy Sedlak, who you can find at Andy Sedlak on Instagram and you can write him at sedlackjournal at gmail.com you can write me at theclintdavis at gmail.com you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Clint Davis like the playlist on Spotify um, you know share the show rate it review it please and um, if we earned a five star from you please give it to us 
uh, that really does go a long way to kind of um, bolstering our cred. We've been doing this for a while, and we love always hearing from anybody who uh, who enjoys the show. So thank you guys very much, and I'll talk to you again in a month. Until then, stream on. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.